0: Tonight, I'd like to talk about the teaching of dependent origination. This teaching is fundamental, foundational to the Buddhist teaching. And it is also an extremely complex teaching. I think of the teaching of dependent origination, which is a chain of 12 links that describe the causes and conditions that lead to suffering, I think of this chain as a detailed exposition of the second noble truth. It goes into great depth about how suffering comes to be in our experience. Sometimes dependent origination is called the middle teaching. This teaching uh, as distinct from what we usually think of in terms of uh, the Buddhist teaching as the middle path, the middle way. The middle teaching, at least in my understanding um, of of what this means, is that um, this teaching is not a practice but rather it's a description of how suffering is created in our experience. The middle path is a set of practices that help us to understand and see this teaching in our moment to moment experience. I'll read you a quote from a sutta that talks about how this is a middle teaching from the Samyutta Nikaya. This world, kachana, for the most part depends upon a duality, upon the notion of existence and upon the notion of non-existence. But for one who sees the notion of, but for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no notion of non-existence in regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is, with correct wisdom, there is no notion of existence in regard to the world. All exists, kachana, this is one extreme. All does not exist, this is the second extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle, the middle teaching. With ignorance as condition, volitional formations come to be. With volitional formations as condition, consciousness comes to be. With consciousness as condition, name and form. With name and form as condition, the six sense bases. With the six sense bases as condition contact, with contact as condition feeling, with feeling as condition craving, with craving as condition clinging, with clinging as condition existence, with existence as condition birth. With birth as condition, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. So what he's pointing to here is that largely we think about things in terms of things, either existing or not existing And he's pointing to this teaching of dependent origination as kind of a counter to that or in the middle way between those two extremes of existence and non-existence. When we see that the origin of experience is in this causal chain, that it's just simply a product of causes and conditions creating experience, the idea of non-existence doesn't, doesn't occur to us. And when we see that the cessation of these very same conditions is just a causal process, the notion of existence just doesn't really fit for us. So it's, this teaching is between these two extremes of existence and non-existence. So there is a chain of conditions that leads to a kind of a stream, but it's not existence in the way that we think that it is. It's not a thing existing, it's a process. Conditioned process of things coming together and falling apart. So this teaching is complex, Um, 12 links in this chain of dependent origination, and I will cover them all this evening. This teaching has always been complex. There is an interchange between Ananda and the Buddha that underscores this complexity, the Buddha underscoring its complexity. Ananda says, comes to the Buddha and says, it is wonderful, it is marvelous how profound this dependent origination is and how profound it appears. And yet it appears to me as clear as clear. And the Buddha says, don't say that Ananda, don't say that. This dependent duration Dependent origination is profound and it appears profound. It is through not understanding, not penetrating this doctrine that this generation has become like a tangled ball of string covered with a blight, tangled like with coarse grass unable to pass beyond states of woe, ruin and the round of rebirth. So the Buddha basically equates... A penetrative understanding of this teaching with full liberation. So we probably won't get there tonight. But um, yeah, there's one. There's one sutta that I really like to contemplate, both giving dharma talks and hearing them. There's a, a sutta in the canon that it's a story of a monk who's giving a Dharma talk about uh, the five aggregates. And he's not fully enlightened, the monk that's giving the Dharma talk, but he's more awakened, more realized than the people he's giving the talk to. And so he's explaining to them his understanding about the five aggregates, which they don't really understand very clearly at all. And the suttas say that during the process of giving this dharma talk and having a dharma discussion, because it was actually kind of a back and forth discussion, during the process of giving this dharma talk, both all the people who were listening to the talk and the person who was giving the talk became fully enlightened. (laughs) So there's hope for all of us tonight. So I hope to make this talk both clear and practical. This teaching can seem kind of obscure, kind of um, sometimes irrelevant almost, just why do I need to know this? I have actually found it helpful in my own practice to have some understanding of this teaching, and so I'm going to offer it, hopefully, in a way that will... Um, give you some sense of the, its practicality, the un, why understanding this is helpful, how this teaching can support our practice. A couple of a couple of comments about that, just to begin the talk. I think one of the key ways this supports our practice is that. It provides such a clear causal description of how suffering is created. This is an impersonal process, this process that's described. It happens in all of our minds. It's not just me or just you that experience this. It's an impersonal process. So it helps us Seeing this or hearing this teaching, at least for me, helps me to resonate or connect with the impersonal nature of the arising of suffering. The other aspect of this teaching that is helpful is because it does describe a set of causes and conditions that lead to suffering. And it points to these suffering and the causes of suffering as happening in our mental processes. This chain describes a set of conditions leading from one to the other, tending from one to the other. But as Guy said the other night when he spoke about this, he spoke about a portion of this chain of dependent origination, it's not in lockstep once this thing gets started. It's not as if it's, you know, just dominoes. It can sometimes seem like that. We can, we can watch portions of this chain falling as though dominoes were stacked up against each other. But it is as if at some point, through clearly seeing particularly, particular aspects of this chain with wisdom, with mindfulness, that that chain can be cut. Through seeing how the causes are created in our minds, choices that we make can begin to dismantle this process. That through understanding the causes of suffering, we see that when the causes are not arising, the suffering doesn't arise. And the choices that we make can help support this, the causes of suffering to not arise. So the 12 links of dependent origination, I'll just state them right now and then go through them. Ignorance, conditions mental formations, conditions consciousness, conditions mentality, materiality, uh, this word poly word for this is namarupa sometimes translated name and form then name and form mentality materiality conditions the six sense spaces see our sight sound smell our eye ear nose tongue skin our body and our mind conditions the six sense spaces having the six sense spaces conditions contact contact with the sense spaces that contact conditions feeling pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Feeling conditions craving. Craving conditions clinging. Clinging conditions becoming. Becoming conditions birth. Birth conditions old age, sickness and death, and as the Buddha says, the entire mass of suffering. So before I go into the links, I want to just point out that this chain is often described also not just as a a one-way chain to suffering but as a cycle so that the um, ending of this chain at suffering doesn't just simply end with suffering it actually loops back that suffering tends to condition more ignorance although it doesn't have to, and I'll get to that in a little while. So this the cycle loops, loops back on itself. Suffering tends to condition more ignorance, which then sends the cycle into a round, another round. The classical teaching on this topic in the commentaries in particular breaks this chain down into essentially three lives that in that in that teaching and I see this potentially as uh, partly at least as a, a, a pedagogical way of understanding this cycle that in that teaching ignorance and mental formations which are the first two links in the chain from a previous life condition the arising of birth or condition the arising of consciousness in this life so that the 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 chain of dependent origination broken into three lives the previous life being ignorance and mental formations and then the uh, the links through from consciousness mentality materiality um, Six sense spaces, contact, feeling, pers- uh, feeling, craving, clinging, becoming, all of that is in this life. And then that conditions our arising into the next life, into birth, into the next life, and aging and death. So the literal phrasing of the links, particularly birth, aging, and death, tends to support this notion of this um, this chain being a description of how the round of suffering is carried from life to life. And I think that part of the, 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 the teaching here is as a way of understanding that, frequently in the time of the Buddha, there was this question asked, well, if there's no self, who gets reborn? You know, this kind of very... Um, common question and his answer to that lies in this chain of dependent origination. It's just causes and conditions flowing. So the suttas support this uh, understanding of the chain of dependent origination as um, describing how suffering continues or propagates between lives. And it also supports an understanding of the teaching as a description how, a description of how suffering is created moment to moment in this life. And if we even think about it, you know, to break it into ignorance and mental formations in the previous life, conditioning all of our consciousness, feeling, craving, clinging in this life, we don't have to even think about a previous life to, to, to recognize ignorance happening here and now. It's not just ignorance from a previous life that's conditioning this life, it's ignorance here and now. It's ignorance in this moment that's conditioning the unfolding of our experience and our suffering. We also don't have to wait until the next life to be born and die. So. All of these links, even the ones the ones said to be connected to the previous life, kind of can be laid into this life. Likewise, the links said to be connected with the future life can be seen as overlaid into this life as well. So in this case, the term birth is understood not as the birth into a body being born from your mother, but the birth into an identity, the feeling of self. And the term aging and death can be understood to refer to the passing away, the cessation of moment-to-moment experience. How these identities that come into being pass away, how moment-to-moment experience just changes radically, over and over, moment by moment, arising and passing away, arising and passing away, moment by moment. So this term for aging and death can be understood to refer to that. So there are both interpretations, the three lives interpretation and the understanding of the... The chain of dependent origination is unfolding in moment-to-moment experience. Both can be understood from the suttas. Now the second interpretation is the one that I connect with most. I don't have any um, knowledge or intimation of previous lives, so I can't, in my direct experience, connect with that part of the, the chain as referring to previous lives. But I can connect with quite a bit or, you know, at least portions, have seen portions of this chain at work in my own experience. And this has been very meaningful to me, to actually witness this and see how it works. And so this is how I'll speak about it tonight from this perspective. So I'm going to start with a kind of in a kind of an unconventional way the first link of the chain is ignorance but I'm not going to start there I'm going to start kind of in the middle where Guy started the other night because this is really the easiest place to begin to connect with what the Buddha is talking about and I actually found a sutta tonight when I was reviewing the, uh, the suttas that the Buddha gave on dependent origination there's one sutta where he too begins with yep there's there's the I and there's There's a sight and there's contact. From that contact, there's feeling. So in one discourse, he actually began it right with our physical experience. And that's where I'm going to begin tonight. Just starting with our sense bases, and there's contact with those sense bases. So the first link I'm going to just talk about is that we have these sense bases. We have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, um, skin, and our mind. And because of those sense spaces, there is contact with experience. Because of those sense spaces, and because there is consciousness, which is a previous link. If the body was just lying there dead, there's not going to be this contact. But because there is life, because there is consciousness, there's contact with these sense spaces. That's the second link tonight. So, six sense spaces. Um, Conditions contact. Each one of those contacts with the sense bases produces a um, feeling to it, a flavor. It's got a flavor. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So this is the Vedana, the feeling tone of experience. We've talked about this quite a bit. Based on this feeling tone, in a really straightforward way, natural in a way. If it's pleasant, we like it, we want it. If it's unpleasant, we don't like it, we don't want it. If it's neutral, we may not notice it. But often what arises from here, and in this chain this is kind of the, the condition, this feeling tends to condition this wanting. We're kind of like a simple automatic machine that tries to maximize pleasant and minimize unpleasant in our experience. This is the wanting. This is the craving. Feeling, conditions, craving. We usually automatically act on this craving. We take a kind of an action to grab onto that thing. That's clinging. There's the wanting and the clinging. And as Carol described the other night very beautifully, that distinction, the, the, the wanting, the craving, is, is, is described as being like the thief that's reaching out to get something. And the clinging is when the thief actually grabs it. So once an something is clung to, our intentions, our actions kind of rally in the service of that clinging to control it, to make sure it stays in our possession in some way, or to make sure that whatever it is that we're clinging to, that we can continue to have. So this is becoming. It's the entire process, the intentions and actions that... Are generated to serve the clinging. We like becoming. It actually feels good in a way to know where we're headed, how we'll get there, how we'll control things. So sometimes this takes a, a, this becoming feeling can take a subtle feeling like I'm in control, I know what I'm doing. Following on from this becoming is birth into some kind of an identity. Things become me or mine or I am. This might take some obvious form, like you know, this is, this is my shawl, a kind of possessive aspect. Or it might take a, a kind of a more identity. I am the kind of person who does things right. So one kind of little side note about dependent origination, one thing that I find really helpful to reflect on with respect to dependent origination, it describes how suffering comes to be. But it also describes how this process of selfing comes to be. This process of becoming in birth, this identification process, is the the process of selfing. And so we can study the suffering, and by studying the suffering, we're studying the selfing. Or we can study this process of selfing, and we will be seeing how suffering is generated in our experience. So, from this point of birth into an identity, suffering is inevitable. Because any time there is a a birth into an identity, a birth of any sort, there will be aging and death. There will be a dismantling of that identity. Whether that identity is a sense of possession, this is mine. So the, the suffering might come from the obvious separation. You know, somebody picks this up and walks off with it no longer mine and I suffer because it was mine. I liked it. I I enjoyed the feeling of it and it is no longer mine. So there can be suffering from that. Or there can be suffering from, if you have an identity, for example, around I'm the one who does things right, there may be some evidence pointed out to you that you just cannot ignore that Well, maybe I don't always do things right. I made a mistake. And that shatters that notion of being the one who always does things right. So there is a death of that identity. So I'd like to, um, so I've just gone through those links kind of briefly, and I'd like to. um, give you some examples. Um, I'm, also, I'm just going to give you one example since I um, have a lot more I'd like to cover. I mean, There's the kind of obvious example I could give around sense pleasure, the, the clinging that happens around something that's pleasant to our senses and the possessiveness that happens around that. But I think more often what happens in our suffering in the way this chain unfolds is Kind of clinging around an identity, that that kind of experience, and so I'll describe a little bit about how that might unfold. So um, you might have a notion of you know wanting to you know the idea of being a good yogi comes into your mind. Now, this is contact with the sense door. The idea arises in the mind. What does it mean to be a good yogi? A thought, a fantasy might appear in your mind about being a good yogi. You might, for example, envision, I've had this experience, telling your teacher about some insight that you've never had. So that fantasy comes to mind. It, um, that's contact. the idea arises in the mind, we become aware of it. That's contact. Then there's a feeling tone to that. The feeling tone around this particular idea or fantasy may be pleasant. Thinking about describing yourself, having this great insight to your teacher feels pleasant as a fantasy. Then there may be the wanting for that fantasy to become a reality. That's the craving. The clinging here results is kind of more of a, um, it's kind of an intensification of that wanting. It's a kind of a fixation on the idea as being necessary. I kind of think of the clinging in this case as being a belief that being a good yogi is necessary for my happiness. So that belief comes into into being. So there's the wanting to have the fantasy become reality and the belief that it's necessary, the craving and the clinging. The becoming aspect is the intentions that kind of rally in the service of that belief. What we start to do, how we start to act in order to fulfill that belief. So maybe we have these intentions around um, what we think we need to do to be a good yogi, sit for a long time in the hall, um, you know do really slow walking or um, whatever your particular version of that is, some ideas about that, and then we begin to, to act them out. So we begin to, to follow through on those. Um, those intentions that are in the service of that belief. This is important. This is necessary. Here's what I need to do. That's becoming. Then the birth is, and let's for simplicity for this example, um, say that the, uh, these patterns of behavior actually lead to the feeling of being a good yogi. So this is, this is the birth into the identity, the distinct feeling of identi- identity, a distinct feeling of, ah, oh, I am a good yogi. And perhaps there's evidence to confirm this. You see yourself walking more slowly than everybody else, or perhaps you're sitting later at night or getting up earliest in the morning, whatever it is, there's some kind of evidence to support this. So there's this distinct feeling of self here. And then from this point, again, this distinct feeling of self, it's a construction of the mind. And it is impermanent. It will pass. Things will happen. Now, it may, it may be, you might be able to hold on to that identity unbroken chain until you die. It's possible, unlikely, but possible. Um, so your separation from that identity could happen at your death but most likely what's going to happen is that there's some something will change in your experience you'll have a sitting or two where the mind is wandering all over the place no longer seems like you're really able to be present and connected for the entire sitting, you know, being a good yogi, really able to sit and not just sit for a long time, but be completely mindful and present. And then comes along a sitting where you're sleepy, or you're tired, or or the mind just starts going back into fantasy, or remembering your childhood, and all of this pancha comes up, and well, this is now proof that you are not a good yogi. So that identity of being a good yogi, dies a smashing death, and another identity is born, I'm not a good yogi. So this is suffering. The actual loss is suffering. The threat of loss is suffering. The fear of loss is suffering. The suffering that we experience is in direct proportion to the amount of attachment that we have, To that experience. How strongly we were clinging to that experience. So as a simple example to kind of demonstrate how the strength of attachment gives rise to the different strength of the suffering around it. If you're sitting at the dining room table and you have a glass by your place... And you go away and come back and your glass is gone. There may be some irritation or annoyance that somebody cleared away your glass. So that's a small kind of suffering. I mean, the attachment to these glasses is not that strong, right? I mean, we, we do have a subtle attachment to it. It's like, this is my glass while I'm using it here at this meal, when somebody clears it away. There's kind of an annoyance. Oh, I need to go get another glass. You know, why did somebody clear it away? Didn't they see it was obviously my glass? So there's there's a little bit of a suffering that arises there. If you have brought your own personal um, insulated travel mug with you, and it's sitting next to your plate, and you come back and it's gone, maybe a little bit more suffering arises. So that kind of points to the, that intensity of the clinging, more of a sense of ownership, of possession of your own personal property. So that gives you a flavor for how this chain works. We've talked about some number of links of this chain. Now I'd like to go back to the beginning and review those those first few that I haven't talked about yet but first again to point to the cyclic nature of this so the suffering conditions ignorance so this just to point to that link between those two that suffering further conditions ignorance The Buddha actually pointed to this directly in one teaching. He says, and what is the result of suffering? There are some cases in which a person overcome with pain, her mind exhausted, grieves, mourns, laments, beats her breast, and becomes bewildered. Or one overcome with pain, her mind exhausted, comes to search outside. Who knows a way or two to stop this pain? I tell you, Monks, that suffering results in either bewilderment or search. So suffering leads to, often leads to this confusion, this bewilderment side of things. This is related to the ignorance. So suffering leads to ignorance. The main definition of ignorance given in the suttas is not understanding the Four Noble Truths. So ignorance means we don't understand suffering. And here again, the connection between suffering and ignorance. When we don't understand suffering, suffering leads to ignorance. We don't understand suffering. We don't understand its cause. We don't understand how it comes to be. In ignorance, we think we know what will lead to happiness. We think having what we want will make us happy. And as I think you've all seen, having what we want only goes so far. It doesn't actually lead to a very deep kind of satisfaction. And actually, the having what we want, when we get what we want and have that moment of, ah, yes, this is this is the way it's supposed to be. That clinging arises from that and we are just deepening the rut of this pattern of dependent origination, this pattern of suffering. So if we can meet this suffering with wisdom, mindfulness and wisdom coming together, the causal chain can lead us in another direction towards liberation, towards freedom. So suffering leads to ignorance. Ignorance conditions mental formations. So based on ignorance, mental formations, just as a reminder, is the intentional aspect of our experience. And so based on ignorance, our intentions are formed about how we choose things, decide things, and behave. These intentions are the mental formations. So mental formations are kind of the patterns and habits that lead us forward through this cycle. Out of ignorance, These patterns and habits make us act in unskillful ways. We take the most obvious move to get rid of suffering, to have what we want, to get rid of what we don't want, which just leads us through this cycle. And we think we are acting to alleviate uh, our suffering by getting what we want. But actually, it's just cementing this process further. So these habits and patterns, these unskillful patterns and habits, are the mental formations that result from ignorance. With mental formations as a condition, with these kind of mental formations conditioned by ignorance, And actually, ignorance is an interesting factor here. Ignorance is at the beginning of the chain, but one scholar monk, Nyanatiloka, Tiloka, pointed out that ignorance isn't just at the beginning. It's actually arising at every point on this chain. So in those mental formations, those unskillful habits and patterns, it's not simply that ignorance has propelled them into being. There is that aspect of it, that because of ignorance, we act in unskillful ways. But in that very acting unskillfully, ignorance is there in that moment. So ignorance is kind of arises, co-arises with every link in this chain when wisdom is not present. So with mental formations as a condition, consciousness comes to be. So we can think of the habits and patterns conditioning our consciousness and what we experience. Now, this is those filters that we've talked about, those habits and patterns, the, the kind of proclivities, the ignorance has put us into a certain frame of mind, and that frame of mind then conditions how we see things. So as an example, which we've used before, if there's a kind of an arising of anger in the mind, there is a kind of proclivity, a filtering that tends to point us towards things that confirm that anger, or perhaps even just make us pull unpleasant experience out of our environment. When we're in a kind of an aversive state, it tends to... Have us orienting towards the unpleasantness in our environment. This is this process of mental formations conditioning consciousness. So this this filtering mechanism, I think, is pretty deeply put put into our psyche. It's 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 uh, pretty deeply ingrained that we, when we have an our attention or agenda, we have an agenda towards something. In some way, our 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 mind is designed to. Uh, kind of exclude things that aren't in line with that agenda. It's kind of an interesting, amazing study, which some of you have probably heard about, that points to this, the power of this. There was a study um, where they were asking participants in the study to watch a video. And on this video, they were, at, they were asking them to count, it was a basketball Players that were playing on the video, and they're asking them to count the number of times that a ball was passed between players on a team. And while they were watching this, you know, they, they, most of the people were able to pretty accurately count that number. But then they were asked at the end of the study, "Did you notice anything unusual?" And the vast majority of people said no. Occasionally, somebody would say. Was there a gorilla in there somewhere? (laughs) And and there had been, there had been uh, in this video, while these people were passing the basketball, a guy in a gorilla suit had come out and wandered around the the basketball court and then walked off. (laughs) And the vast majority of people did not see this. Now there. Uh, sense of their own perception was so strong that they, when they actually saw the video again they denied that it was the same video. <laughs> this can't be the same video. So this is the power of this filtering mechanism. So with consciousness as a condition materiality, mentality comes to be. Now, that's a kind of a funny term. This translates the term nama rupa. Other translations, mind and matter, name and form. This refers to mentality, materiality. The best, most concise definition I've seen for this is that it refers to the processes of our body and most of the processes in our mind. One concise definition says mentality, materiality, we go back to the five aggregates, mentality and materiality is the, are the four aggregates of body, feeling, perception, and mental formations. The only one that's out is consciousness. And that consciousness is what's conditioning the other four. So this is, this is one way to understand materiality mentality is as, as, as these four of the five aggregates the, the, the four excluding consciousness. So there's a very close dependence of these two, as you can kind of see. The five aggregates uh, often are talked about as arising together. And there's one sutta where the Buddha actually describes in his exploration of these factors, of or these chain links in the chain of dependent origination, he's contemplating about Mind and mentality, materiality, and consciousness. And he thinks, what? Okay, so what conditions mentality, materiality? Consciousness conditions that. And what conditions consciousness? Materiality, mentality conditions consciousness. So he sees that there's a kind of a back and forth, a mutual conditioning of these two. And in one sutta, uh, one monk is confused about this and asks Shariputra to explain what this is. And Shariputra gives an analogy. He says, it's as if there's two sheaves of wheat that are propped against each other. They hold each other up. If you take one out, they'll both fall. So this is kind of the way in which these two are mutually conditioning. So again, based on the state of our consciousness, where however it is disposed, if it's flavored by anger, then our... The other aggregates kind of are conditioned by that flavoring of consciousness. If if we have anger in our minds, then we tend to perceive things that confirm that anger. The feeling tends to be unpleasant. Our body may be distorted with um, tightness and tension, and our face may have an unpleasant expression on it. So these other four of the aggregates, mentality, materiality, are conditioned by the kind of consciousness, the kind of flavoring to consciousness. And so now we've met, made a full loop around this chain. We're back where we're starting. We started that we have this mind and body, and there are the six sun spaces. But you can see in this now, when I first started talking about it we were kind of talking about it from a neutral place okay there's the eye and then there's a sight and then that sight is either pleasant or there's contact and then it's either pleasant or unpleasant but you can see actually now coming in from this point it's not starting from something neutral it's already got a spin to it our mind already has a spin to it we are predisposed to have contact with things that confirm Our ignorance, our views, our identities. And so this cycle tends to reinforce itself. Very potent cycle. So this chain being description of causes and conditions that support the arising of suffering, and understanding that it's not you know, lockstep, that there is possibly a way to get out of it, we look at how can we change the conditions. If we can change the conditions, then perhaps the cycle will lead in a different direction. The main way to change the conditions is to bring mindfulness and wisdom to our experience, moment by moment. The only place we can have any foothold or, or, or toehold in breaking this chain is in the present moment, in this very moment. We can't do anything about what happened in the past but we can meet this moment with mindfulness and wisdom. This begins to undermine that ignorance, which is co-arising at every point in this chain. When When ignorance is present in the mind, wisdom is not present in the mind. When wisdom is present in the mind, it begins to knock that wisdom down. So we can use mindfulness and wisdom at any point in this cycle, to begin to dismantle this process of suffering. And there are some weak links in, in this chain. And we've talked about, in particular, the, the link between feeling and craving. And there's another one between suffering and ignorance, that link at the, at the beginning of the cycle where suffering tends to lead to ignorance. So in that quote that I read where the Buddha said, suffering leads to bewilderment or to search. In that search, we may meet a teaching, some wisdom that seems to point us in a different direction. And if that wisdom meets us at the right moment, it will lead to faith instead of ignorance. So suffering also has the possibility of moving not to ignorance, but to faith. And there's another chain that's described called the chain of transcendent dependent origination that begins with suffering and then moves from faith to gladness, to rapture, tranquility, happiness, concentration, knowledge and vision of things as they are, to disenchantment, dispassion, liberation. Similar kind of causal link. Leading from suffering met with wisdom, understanding, leading to faith. So the work at this point in the chain is to understand suffering. This is the first noble truth. This is what the Buddha told us is our work with suffering. Understand it. Not intellectually, but understanding in the moment, how does the suffering come to be? How does it dismantle? Understand the processes around it. Essentially understand some of the aspects of this chain. This is a lot of what we've been doing here, meeting our suffering with mindfulness and wisdom. With this teaching, all of the the teaching that we've been doing the discussions and the in the interviews and the teachings the question and answer there's this wisdom that's being kind of chewed on in this room and this wisdom and the mindfulness together when it when they meet suffering they begin to kind of break little put little holes into that suffering we begin to see how oh, this thing that I used to suffer over, you know, it's not such a big deal anymore. There's a lot more space around it. Or sometimes we even see suffering end completely. A particular pattern just collapse when we see, oh, I see how I think this is going to continue forever. Seeing that ignorance in the mind, actually seeing that, the ignorance can't sustain sustain under the light of that understanding. And it falls apart. The pattern falls apart. We've all seen this. The power of mindfulness and wisdom to cut through our suffering, transform it in a moment. And then there's the link between feeling and craving, which is also a weak link. And we've actually talked about this one quite a bit, so I won't spend a lot of time on this one. But I do want to point to another sutta that, where the Buddha kind of highlighted this aspect of feeling. I'll read it to you. He, he highlights this aspect of feeling and, and it, it, it brings a completely different twist on the topic than the, depend, the chain of dependent origination. Feeling leads to craving, to clinging, becoming, birth, suffering. That's the flavor of dependent origination. In the Sutta, the Buddha said, I will teach you the all, the root of everything. All things are rooted in desire. They come to actual existence through attention, originate from contact, and converge on feelings. So here this is kind of in the same terrain as some of those links of dependent origination. We have contact and feeling, And there's attention, which is in the realm of mental formations. But then it goes in a different direction. The foremost of all things is concentration. All things are mastered by mindfulness. Their peak is wisdom. Their essence, liberation. All things merge in the deathless, and Nibbana is their culmination. So here this is pointing to, from feeling, he points to concentration and mindfulness leading us to wisdom. So whatever we feel, bringing concentration and mindfulness to our experience, that is a very central practice in what the Buddha teaches. This mindfulness of feeling bringing concentration and mindfulness to our experience of feeling, we just see, oh, it's feeling. It's just feeling. That wisdom, it's essentially the, uh, the, the feeling leads to craving when ignorance is present with that feeling. When wisdom is present, feeling leads to the cessation of feeling. Pleasantness ceases. Unpleasantness arises and ceases. It's just feeling. So one key that I like to highlight about the sutta is that it points to all things. All things have liberation as their essence, merge in the deathless, and culminate in nirvana. This is all things he's talking about. It doesn't matter what we bring our mindfulness and concentration to with joined with wisdom. Mindfulness and concentration joined with wisdom, whatever we are paying attention to has this capacity to lead us to liberation. The touch of a doorknob, a feeling of anger, of fear, a feeling of bliss, of happiness, of balance of mind, of equanimity. Whatever We are experiencing mindfulness and wisdom lead us towards the freedom. Whatever we're doing, brushing our teeth, eating a meal, sitting in meditation, moment by moment, this work of Seeing our experience can begin to break this whole chain apart. We see ignorance at work, and in that seeing, there's freedom. So let's sit for a few moments.